Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 374, Book Session Identity Crisis, Part 3. In this final portion of the Four Views book panel session at the Evangelical Philosophical Society in San Antonio, you'll hear audience Q&A and also some further discussion amongst the panelists. So here again is session moderator Tim Stratton. All right, I'll be calling on audience members here. Directly ask your question to individual panelists, and the panelists will keep their answers succinct. When I call on you, state your name and clearly state your question. Uh, yes, Angus. Yeah, so uh, Dale and all panelists, uh, what about the fact that Jesus repeatedly refers to himself in Mark's Gospel as the Son of Man? And going back to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is capable of directly entering the presence of the Ancient of Days, uh, which is a form of God the Father, and so he must himself be uh, divine. And furthermore, it was on account of his repeated statement of this that he was accused of blasphemy. So it would seem to me that if you hold that he was somehow uh, less than God, he has to even be less than a good man because he has to be uh, delusional as as well. Uh, It seems to me that those and many other passages imply that Jesus does indeed uh, claim to be uh, God. So what would you do with those? Yeah, he's not claiming to be God. He's claiming to be that second one who comes into the divine throne room in Daniel. Uh, This is fulfilled in Revelation where he appears looking like a lamb that's been slain. The fact that he's been slain tells you that he's not fully divine because that implies essential immortality. It's become popular for scholars to talk about, you know, the Son of Man as a, quote, a divine figure. But he's not a divine figure in the sense of full divinity, according to the New Testament, because, again, he died. Now, that's a decent enough answer as far as it goes. But there's another fact about this passage in Daniel 7, which makes the present-day appeals to it as somehow showing the deity of Christ kind of ridiculous. If you look at verse 18, it's clear that the original Jewish interpretation of this passage was that the one like a son of man represents the Jews, the people of God, or at least the faithful ones. So no, nothing about this whole scene implies the full divinity or even the divinity of the one like a son of man. But my questioner presses his point. He has a way of recording that same passage of everlasting kingdom. Yes, amen. Right, I go into church mode and start amening here, because of course I agree that Jesus' kingdom is going to be everlasting. But again, the original pre-Christian interpretation was that the one like son of man represents the people of God. That's why Daniel 7.18 says, But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's interpreting the scene that just went before. Okay, but my questioner's not done yet. The priests accuse him of blasphemy and also for his forgiveness of sins in, in, in general. So I think that repeatedly he, he is claiming to be divine and is, is interpreted by his audience. Okay, so you're, you're referring to Mark 2 and Mark 14. In both cases, I think the author wants you to think that the Jews are wrong that he's blaspheming. He's not blaspheming by saying your sins are forgiven. They're wrong uh, when they say he's blaspheming because he claims to be the Messiah. Uh, they just have a rather expansive concept of blasphemy. It doesn't require claiming to be God. But anyway, the reader is not supposed to agree with that charge. Too short, I was under time pressure to say a little bit more. When Jesus says to the paralytic child, your sins are forgiven, and his critics say, who can forgive sins but God alone? The author of the gospel, according to Mark, does not want you to think that what they just said is true. Jesus says, which is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he says to the paralytic to get up. The Son of Man is understood to have authority given by God here. That rules out his being God. He's been authorized to forgive sins by God. Now still, 
some knuckleheaded readers fixate on the part where his critics say who can forgive sins but God alone. I mean, that's obviously wrong-headed when you look at the whole passage. And in case that wasn't obvious enough, when Matthew retells this tale in chapter 9 of his gospel, he makes some very interesting revisions. So in Mark, when his critics are thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone, Jesus just says, why are you thinking these things? And then he makes the argument I mentioned before. In the Matthew version, first of all, Matthew cuts out their statement, who can forgive sins but God alone. He doesn't want that to mislead the reader. That's why he cuts it out. He just says that the scribes are saying to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In Matthew's version, Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, etc. Okay, so it's evil for them to think that he's out of line here, that he's blaspheming, or that he's treading on God's prerogatives. He's not, because as he says also in the Matthew version, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells the paralytic to stand up, and he's healed. And then, Matthew 9, 8, Matthew adds a reaction shot, so to speak, that's not in Mark. It says, When the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings, like Jesus. So if you thought the point here is that Jesus is God, or that Jesus is fully divine, No, this author makes it even clearer than it was originally in Mark. The point is that God has authorized this man to forgive sins. If you do things unauthorized, that might count under their definition of blasphemy. But in fact, he has been authorized. And if you falsely claim to be God's Messiah, under some definitions of blasphemy, that may count. But of course, at the end of Mark when Jesus is being grilled by the high priest, the author wants you to understand that that's not a false claim. And so it's a false charge of blasphemy. Obviously, you don't have to be God to make a non-blasphemous claim to being God's Messiah. Question for Tuggy. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him alone. Uh, Jesus received worship prior to his being exalted. Paul received worship, but rebuked the worship. Jesus did not rebuke the worship. Therefore, it would follow that Paul is more righteous than Jesus. Yeah, generally speaking, the worship given before his exaltation is the word proskuneo, which is often translated as doing obeisance to. Right, so when the magi, or the wise men, meet the young Jesus in Matthew 2, they're not honoring him because they think he's God, or because they think he's fully divine. It says who they're looking for, they ask in verse 2, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? They're honoring him because they believe he's destined to be a king. That's why it says, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. In other translations, it would say they worshipped him. But it's the kind of honor you give to a king. It can also be the type of honor you give to God. There's a famous passage in the Old Testament where in the Greek, the same form of proskuneo is used to describe worship of the king and worship of God. First Chronicles 20.29, 20, Then David told the whole assembly, Now bless Yahweh your God. And the whole assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, bowing down in homage before Yahweh and before the king. That's the New American Bible. The King James says, They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and the King. So, yeah, I mean, the New Testament author's view, I think, is that the commandment to worship only Yahweh meant don't worship any of the alleged deities, only me. And they think that's still in force. Jesus isn't one of the deities of the nations, nor any kind of deity. He's the Son of God, who's a man who's been exalted to God's right hand, and that exaltation entails that people have to give religious honor to him, to the glory of God. So in Luke 4, when Jesus cites Deuteronomy, he says, you shall proscane him with the Lord thy God alone. So he uses the same Greek word. He's refusing to worship the devil on those grounds. All right, I think that was a good move. 
So the difference between Paul and Jesus is that Paul has not been raised to God's right hand. What they have in common is they're both men. Jesus, of course, unlike him, is from a miraculous conception. That's the New Testament view. Worshiping Jesus isn't a violation of the commandment to only worship Yahweh. In fact, they view it as a way of honoring or worshiping Yahweh. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Great follow-up. I'm going to ask to keep the follow-ups to a minimum here. Phil, you're next. Uh, Phil Calvert, my question is for Dr. Craig. You were talking about the law of identity in your yes. presentation. And I was, this happened a little bit back and forth there, but I was a little confused. You seem to be saying that Aristotle talked about the transit property of the law of identity in prior analytics, but then after that, nobody else really talked about it at all until the Middle Ages. I mean, I haven't read the history on this, but that just, it seems rather odd to me that that would be the case, that Aristotle gives us a law of identity and then nobody talks about it for... What, thousands, 1,200 years? Well, I don't know if it was thousands, hundreds. Uh, yes, that's right. Again, look at William and Martha Neal's History of Logic, and even with Aristotle, it's only about two sentences in which he enunciates or articulates the modern identity relation. That's not true at all. See my recent blog post on this. I had always been taught that Aristotle was the source of the three laws of logic, A equals A, not A and not A, and either A or not A. That's a fiction. He hardly has anything to say about identity. And the rest of his contemporaries for hundreds of years didn't have a concept of this irreducible, reflexive, symmetric, transitive equivalence relation. And so we really are in danger of anachronism and imputing this kind of reading to these New Testament texts. And I honestly, I think this is, this is the heart of Dale's Unitarian view, and you cut that nerve and, and it's over for Unitarianism. There, then, then all this attempt to explain away all of these attributions of deity to Christ, they just become brittle and implausible once that identity claim is given up. Well, I'll answer in a second, but let's just keep in mind that the identity of the one God with the Father is the heart of my view. I think that's a central assumption in the New Testament. And it's also the heart of Dr. Bo Branson's view, what he calls monarchical Trinitarianism. Okay, but let's see what I said in the heat of the moment there. Dr. Tuggy, do you have a yeah, for this has come up several times. I mean, I think Dr. Craig is right in that the former logicians didn't have a logic that treated identity in the way that we do in modern times. That's right, but I explain in the book why I think the concept of identity is a part of just the cognitive equipment that God gave to anyone. You can see this in various ways, right? You refer to something successfully by any means. Now you refer to something by any means by thought or word or pointing or whatever. You can ask yourself, did I just refer to the same thing twice, or did I refer to one thing and then another thing? If you can even ask that question, yes, you have the concept of identity, never mind whether logicians have properly captured this part of common sense. I really think that what I said there is an unassailable argument that can't be given a good answer. It seems obvious that any normal adult would be able to ask that question. Okay, but Dr. Craig is not willing to admit the force of that argument, so instead he's going to push back. Now, you don't have the concept of the relation of identity, though, Dale. I don't think, and by the way, the other Trinitarians don't agree about this. Dr. Craig is the only one who thinks that no ancient person, except maybe Aristotle and a few friends, had a concept of identity. I've never run across this. The modern relation of identity. Look, you either have the concept or you don't. Whether or not you have the kind of full description of all the features of this relation is really another thing. Yeah, look, it's part of Trinitarian confessions to say that the Father's different than the Son's different than the Spirit. And all the Trinitarians who study philosophy in modern times say, oh yeah, that is a denial of identity. So the anti-modalist premise of just any standard Trinitarian thinking, it employs the concept of identity by denying the identity of the persons. Again, I think that's an unassailable argument, and I don't think Dr. Craig has an answer for it. 
he's just stuck on thinking that he has this very simple silver bullet against my position. The only reply I could imagine someone making to it is to say that the ancient anti-modalist plank of Trinitarian confessions just says that the persons are different persons. They wouldn't have a grasp of the concept same thing as or different thing as, but they would have the concept of same person as or different person as. I don't think this is a good reply. I think there's a good analysis of the concept of same person as, and it involves the concept of numerical identity, precisely the concept that we're talking about. So if Smith is the same person as Jones, then three things have to be true. Smith has to be a person, Jones has to be a person, and Smith and Jones have to be one and the same. That's what it means, those three things, to say that Smith and Jones are the same person. So if you say ancient Trinitarians didn't have a concept of numerical identity, but they had a concept of same person as or different person as, well, according to the analysis I just gave, relations like same person as and different person as are to be understood using the concept of numerical sameness or identity or same thing as. To put it differently, if you ask whether Smith and Jones are the same person, obviously being the same person implies being the same thing. Any person just is a certain thing. So if they're the same person, they're the same thing. If they're not the same thing, well, they can't be the same person. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the hostile questions for me continue. Is that Paul in the back? Uh, thanks for the good panel discussion. Uh, Paul Kirkham, uh, and this is for Dale. Uh, what Angus was talking about in Daniel 7, the Son of Man passage, Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 actually is described as the Ancient of Days description from Daniel chapter 7. So we see that these attributes from, of the Ancient of Days are ascribed to Jesus. Looks like Jesus is the Ancient of Days here. Now, honestly, this is a question that I was not prepared for, and it's not easy for the listener, I think, at first hearing to even understand the argument. So let's revisit the text he's talking about. So in Daniel 7, starting in verse 9, it says, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Okay, and then it says some other things, and it ends up introducing the one like a son of man. So let's switch over now to Revelation 1 and the description of Jesus there. So the one having the vision, who calls himself John, in verse 9, hears a voice, and then in verse 12 it says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And then he keeps on going, instructing the visionary about what to write and so on. And remember, at the start of the chapter, at the very start of the book, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Okay, so is this book saying that Jesus is God? Obviously not, because verse 1 distinguishes between Jesus and God. And this one, who's given this striking description, says that he used to be dead. And of course, God, who is essentially immortal, never used to be dead. Are there similarities in the description of God in Daniel 7 and Jesus in Revelation 1? Yes. White hair, white clothing. There are flames, although they're doing different things in each scene, as you may have noticed. I take it this is a vision of a person with great authority and power and glory. And of course, God would have that on God's throne. But also, the risen and exalted Jesus would have that after his exaltation. So I don't see any reason why we should take Revelation 1 as implying or hinting that Jesus is God, or even that Jesus is fully divine, since the New Testament authors think that part of being God is being essentially immortal, whereas this one died. It seems like a hopeless argument to me, to be honest, but Dr. Copen has what he thinks is an important additional point here. And you've heard that sort of thing in Revelation 22. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, quickly. How many Alphas and Omegas are there? How many so, Lords are there? Titles can be shared, even the titles Lord and God, even the title Alpha and Omega. And the author of Revelation does not confuse together Jesus and God. He says that God is the God of Jesus repeatedly in chapter 3. Yes, and to say just a little bit more, I take it the point of these titles, Alpha and Omega and First and Last, is it's a claim of uniqueness. And God is unique. He's the one God. Jesus is unique. He's the unique Messiah, the unique Second Adam, the unique Son of Man, our unique Savior. In short, the one Lord under the one God, as the New Testament teaches. Ma'am. John 15, 13, um, Jesus says, no greater love than anybody having this, sorry, it's for Pastor Charlie or Dr. Charlie, sorry, excuse me. Um, then he says, no greater love than anybody having this, and they lay down their life for a friend, right? So he's saying the greatest way to show love is through sacrificing oneself. We see this with the early church, we see this with the disciples, they lay down their life for him. My question for you is, if Jesus is not God, and God isn't sacrificing life, he's not giving his life for us, which by Jesus' own word is the greatest way to show love. This means I have to give my love, or my, give my life for anybody in this room when I'm showing love in a greater way than God can. So my question to you, isn't that a problem with God's perfection and character? The New Testament gospel is not God died for our sins. It's God sent somebody else who's a man to die for our sins. That's Romans 5. Now, is it a defect in God that he can't die for our sins? No, because that's incompatible with essential immortality. God is alive and his life doesn't depend on anything else. It's a contradiction to say that an essentially immortal being dies. So in this case, yeah, Jesus is doing something that God couldn't have done on his own. Die for us. Note a couple of things so far about the discussion. First, no one has had a question about the Trinity. Dr. Craig has successfully changed the subject to the deity of Christ, which is really the thing that matters to evangelicals. The Trinity is very much kind of a side concern. And um, it's something you're supposed to defend, but it really doesn't play a foundational role in their thinking. What does all this have to do with the Trinity? Christ could be divine in some sense, and yet it could be false that God is a Trinity. Okay, but this is what everybody wants to discuss with me. Everybody wants to show me that, hey, the scriptures do obviously imply this, that Jesus is fully divine. Well, they don't, but they're following tradition and trying to point out that it's obvious one other point I would quickly make is none of the arguments that have been made so far are New Testament arguments. So no one says that uh, the greatest action you can do is to die for others, uh, but God's perfect, so therefore it must be God who has died for others. Nobody in the New Testament argues that Jesus is worshipped, therefore Jesus is God, or Jesus is fully divine. It doesn't happen. No one in the New Testament argues that because Jesus and God share the title Alpha and Omega, that Jesus is God or that Jesus is fully divine. 
Right. So we're in the realm of post-biblical Catholic speculations about God and Jesus, in some cases, very recent speculations rather than sort of classic creedal era ones. Okay, but now Dr. Craig wants to ask me a related question about atonement. Oh, you uh, also adopt a Socinian theory of the atonement that rejects penal substitution since Christ is not divine in favor of a moral influence theory such as Socinus propounded? I do reject penal substitution. I don't think it makes moral sense. I'm not sure I have a fully developed atonement theory. No, I don't just accept Socinus's moral influence theory. I think it's a sacrifice along the lines of an Old Testament sacrifice, but much greater, so great that it could be just once for all applied to everyone. So I think you have to make moral sense of Old Testament sacrifices first. I will add for full disclosure here that Dr. Craig has a 2020 book defending penal substitution theories of atonement. It's called Atonement and the Death of Christ, an Exegetical, Historical, and Philosophical Exploration. I have this book. I haven't read it or digested it. I do think penal substitution theories are not taught in the New Testament and that they're problematic. But apparently this would be a book I would need to deal with if I was going to publish on this topic. Ellie, you're next. Uh, question for uh, Dr. Tabby. In Romans 10, 9, Paul claims that calling upon the name of Jesus brings salvation, and then he continues with quotations from the Old Testament to substantiate his claim, and one of them is Joel 2, which says that everyone who calls upon the name of Jehovah, Jehovah will be saved. My question is, why does Paul link this passage to uh, look, it's an interesting New Testament habit of taking passages that were originally about Yahweh and saying they have a fulfillment in Jesus. But it's also very clear that they are assuming that as it's inspired by God, there can be more than one meaning and more than one fulfillment for these. I mean, uncontroversial example would be Matthew 1 saying that Jesus is the fulfillment about this prediction about Emmanuel, God is with us or God with us, right? If you look back at Isaiah 7, that's some kind of baby in Isaiah's time. So the author of Matthew is not saying that that baby is the same person as Jesus. He's saying, I find an application here to Jesus. Uh, so there are a lot of things like this in the New Testament. It's, you know, the general topic is New Testament use of the Old Testament. And it's not a way of hinting that Jesus is God. They're all assuming that he's not because he has qualities God can't have. He can be tempted. He can die. He can be limited knowledge. He can be under authority. He can have a God. Sir, the man. Uh, it's a random name, so something. Uh, question. Um, the statement when it says that God sent his only begotten son, and throughout the history, not only of Christendom, but also in the Surah, even the Muslims believe that if Jesus is begotten of God, he must be God. How do you answer that question that to be begotten of God, but yet you are not God? You're saying even the Muslims believe that to be begotten of God means that you are God? All right, so how would you respond? Got to read that whole episode in context. Right, the point is when you look at this episode, which is in John 10, you'll see that Jesus actually corrects them. He's not claiming to be God or a God, he's claiming to be God's son, which is the message of the whole fourth gospel, not to mention the first three. Jesus actually gives a very sophisticated argument here. If you want to see what that argument is, check out my blog post entitled Jesus's Argument in John 10. I've got a link to that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Okay, but here's my answer to his other question. But let me just answer the first question. I agree with Dr. Craig and a lot of modern scholars that there is no doctrine of eternal generation and procession in the New Testament. Jesus is the unique son of God because of his miraculous conception. Yeah, that answer is probably a little too concise. So eternal generation and procession are supposed to be how the Son and Spirit get divinity from the Father, but that's not taught in the New Testament. And just in general, in the Bible, being God's Son doesn't imply being God or being fully divine or being a person of the Trinity. None of that. Israel's described as God's Son. A king could be described as God's Son. The unique Messiah, in a unique sense, is God's Son, this one is born, he suffers, he dies, he has faith in God. He's not God, he's not fully divine, and yet he is a genuine son of God. 
even if, say, some of our Muslim friends assume that if God caused Mary to become pregnant, that this might make Jesus divine or something. Uh, appreciate it, everyone. My name is Dan Patterson. Uh, Aussie visiting, um, so thanks for letting me be in here as a escape convict. Um, just wanted to ask, um, Dr. Pagan, appreciate your uh, desire to try and make sense of the New Testament passages, but about the instances in which a claim either by Jesus or about Jesus concerning pre-existence, how you make sense of those. And I'll give you one example, because this seems to me to be maybe the most striking feature in terms of your notion of him coming into existence. This comes from John 17, verse 5. In his high priestly prayer, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I'm glad you asked. Because, of course, I had prepared for it. If you look in the rest of the chapter, Jesus is speaking prophetically about things which are still future as if they're happening now. And this reflects the Jewish habit of talking about things that are destined and part of God's plan to put them in the ancient past, even at the foundation of the world. Or just in general, to move them back in time. If you move something future back into the present or into the past, much less the distant past, what you're doing is you're bringing it into the realm of the unchangeable, the realm of things where it's too late to do anything about them, it's too late to prevent them. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus' glory particularly is his ministry. So there's early statements, you know, that he showed his glory at Cana. We've seen his glory, and it's talking about his earthly ministry. And I think especially his being lifted up on the cross, and maybe what happens after the resurrection and ascension. So the glory that he had with the Father uh, before the world existence were those things for which he was predestined. I claim that is his meaning. Now, there are harder texts than that. And this is a harder issue than whether God is the Trinity or the Father alone. It's much harder. But I would just point out, look, plenty of Unitarian Christians believe in pre-existence. The most famous American Unitarian of all time, William Ellery Channing, believed in pre-existence. Samuel Clark, John Biddle, some of my friends. It's a harder, although almost all of our passages are in John, interestingly. But that's a big topic. It's a big topic. There's a lot that needs to be said on it. I could only gesture at it. If you want to hear a lot more, check out podcast 235 called The Case Against Preexistence. Again, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. All right, we're running short on time and many hands are in the air. So I'm going to try to uh, call those who have raised them first, but let's see what we can do. Let's keep them short and sweet. Same with the answers. Andrew. Um, this might have something to do with what you were just talking about, Dr. Tuggy, but in Isaiah 6, it talks about Isaiah and the, you know, the temple and seeing Yahweh. And then in John 12, it talks about John mentioning the glory that Isaiah saw, and he says that that glory was, was Jesus. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. And, what, and so is that kind of you take the same line of what you just explained, or how do you explain that, I guess? I think just briefly... John says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, not Yahweh's, and that was Yahweh's. And again, in John, Jesus receives glory from God during and after his public ministry. And uh, yeah, there is a reference to uh, that chapter in Isaiah there, but there's also a reference to Isaiah 53. So he's combining different references. So I don't know. I think this is a popular misinterpretation. It's not nearly as sure as some people present it. And again, as before, no New Testament author argues in this way that Jesus is Yahweh, or that Jesus is God, or fully divine, or second person of the Trinity. It's just later concerns, coming up with new, clever arguments, trying to get this out of the text by hook or by crook. If John wanted to tell you that Jesus was Yahweh, there are a hundred clearer ways than that. Eric. Um, Eric Hernandez for Dr. Tuggy. Um, unless I misunderstood you, it seemed like you implied that it would have been shocking that they would have thought of God as more than one person or consistent on more than one person. Um, no, that wasn't really one of my arguments, but anyway. In Genesis 2, 24, it says, Man and woman will become one flesh, and that word is Echad. The Shema, the Lord our God, is Echad. So it seems at least they had the concept of one consisting or being capable of consisting of more than one person. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's right. The word one by itself doesn't tell you if the thing is simple or if it has parts. Right. One family, one army, one group of friends. 
But, you know, Yahweh asserts he's the only God, and this, in the New Testament view, is the Father. And there isn't any doctrine that God consists of multiple persons in the Old Testament. There are hints and adumbrations, people say, but there aren't any people running around who think that God is tripersonal in that time, so it's not revealed. When the Trinity's podcast returns, every Unitarian Christian's favorite question, Sir, have you read John 1? So in John 1, so there is John 1, 1, that in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh. And God cannot be seen, but we have seen God through the Son, who is the Word, become flesh. How can we make all that? At the same time, if Jesus is not the exact imprint, as Hebrew 1 uh, says, how can we have access to look and say anything about God? If there is no access to the to the nature of God, which we claim to uh, have in Jesus Christ, how can we say anything about God? So that's that's my question. So remember the topic is the Trinity. Like there's no Trinity in John one, and it's not particularly helpful to the Trinitarian either, I don't think. I would suggest readers of this book would compare what Dr. Craig says about John one in this book and his other book with what I say in my lecture called What John 1 Meant. In brief, the Logos is God's word by which he made all things. It's this which becomes flesh in Jesus. Uh, What's going on is not unlike what's going on with Lady Wisdom in Proverbs. If you say, aha, but this is word, not wisdom. Well, in the intertestamental literature, you have the equation of God's word with his wisdom. In Sirach 24, wisdom speaks and says she comes out of God's mouth, which makes her his, his word also. And uh, so this God's word is a familiar character from the Old Testament, but it's not supposed to be a literal second God. It's just God, like it says. That is like it says in John 1.1. Well, thank you, panelists. Uh, Please give them a round of applause. Thank you for the great questions. Now, I understand understand that Dr. McIntosh Uh, has a special treat for the other panelists. Uh, So, Dr. McIntosh, please close us up. Well, thanks for coming. And uh, this panel really is the culmination of about two years' worth of work uh, on behalf of the panelists uh, contributing to this volume. And to show my appreciation for all their hard work, I I did have something uh, a little special for them. So Dr. McIntosh breaks out three gift bags. Oh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Craig. Uh, Something to remember. (laughs) okay so dr mcintosh has just handed dr craig a kind of golden action figure of kerberos the three-headed dog from hercules lore and the reason this is funny is because 20 years ago dr craig notoriously used kerberos the three-headed dog as an analogy for the trinity It wasn't really the heart of his theory, um, so he's kind of gotten some unfair criticism for it. But anyway, it was a surprise, and Dr. Craig thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. Everybody did. For Dr. Asker, I had uh, three turtles. You know, it's not turtles all the way down. There there is is a father turtle there. The other two rest on. So I guess that's because Dr. Hasker affirms eternal generation and procession. Oh, that is priceless. Right, the father lion and the baby lion from The Lion King. Kind of a colored Disney action figure kind of thing. Or Aslan and the Emperor Beyond the oh, Sea. <laughs> Dale, don't hate me. Don't hate me? Uh-oh. I get, a, I get a rock. I hope you enjoyed that Charlie Brown Halloween special reference pocket new testament for you and they're all laughing because chad has just handed me a pocket new testament excellent like as if i haven't read that it's the red letter edition <laughs>
But I get my revenge. I'll, I'll add this to my library of Unitarian books. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for keeping us in line, Chad. Just for the record, I was not offended by that present. Uh, Chad is a good friend, and he included a very kind note along with it in the gift bag. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a few things that Dr. Craig has said recently on his podcast about the Trinity and the New Testament. The snippet you're about to hear is from Dr. Craig's Reasonable Faith podcast, December 11th, 2023, entitled Questions on Morality, the Trinity, and Retirement. But we're just going to hear the Trinity part. This next question, we, we get a lot of questions just like this, Bill, and I think it's, uh, it's good to kind of put two or three of them together in this question. Dear Dr. Craig, if the triune God is equal, then why does Jesus say in the Gospel of John that the Father is greater than me? Jesus prays, our Father who art in heaven. So why a prayer to the Father and not to the triune God? Also, Jesus prays the Jewish Shema in the Gospel of Mark and emphasizes the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But no reference from Jesus here to the triune God. Any thoughts on this? Many thanks. He says, parenthetically, if I myself can't fully understand the Trinity, how can I explain it to others? That's Mario in the United yes. States. Well, let me suggest to Mario that he take a look at the chapter on the Trinity in Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, where I attempt to lay out a model of the Trinity that is easy to understand and uh, logically consistent and compatible with what the Bible teaches. <sighs> Except that now he's changed a couple of important things about that theory. He no longer uses the Kerberos analogy. He no longer identifies the one God with the Trinity. And then he claims to have just a simple biblical analysis of what a minimal Trinity doctrine amounts to, which is totally implausible. Is it clear and understandable? No, for the reason I mentioned before, which is it's unclear why one soul having three cognitive faculties would somehow result in three persons rather than just one soul who can think in three different ways. Okay, but let's let him continue. Now, with respect to Jesus saying the Father is greater than me, I think this is a reflection of Jesus' incarnation and humanity. Uh, as a human being, he is submissive to the Father and worships the Father. Bless his heart. If you've been listening to these podcasts, you know that I think that Dr. Craig is a brilliant man and a very accomplished scholar. However, even brilliant people who are accomplished scholars sometimes resort to just dishing out point-missing, off-the-shelf, apologetics, canned answers. How does appeal to incarnation help with this sort of concern? If God is necessarily top-level, which seems to be something we should think about God, because either there's only God, and then no one will be over him, or anyone else there is exists because of God, and no one will be over him. So necessarily, he doesn't have anyone over him. You say, okay, but what if he becomes incarnate? Okay, if God becomes, in some sense, a man— I would still expect that God's necessary qualities wouldn't be changed, and so I would expect God, were God to become a man, to still not have anyone over him, much less worship anyone over him or have to put their faith or trust in someone over him. So saying that God is greater than Jesus as man or that Jesus as man prays to God really doesn't help with these difficulties at all. It's just saying, uh, I don't know, incarnation? 
There's not one single place in the New Testament where the writer mentions something about Jesus that would seem to imply that he's not God, but where the author swoops in and says, now don't think he's not God, because he just has this limitation as man. He just dies as man. He doesn't know the day or the hour as man. He has to trust in God as man. He worships God as man, but not as God, so it's okay. The New Testament authors don't do this because they don't hold to any incarnation theory. And they're not worried about implying that he's someone other than God and that he's less than fully divine because they don't think he's fully divine. They think he died. They think he has to trust in God. They think he can be tempted to do wrong. You can't tempt God. And that's why Jesus prays, Our Father, who art in heaven. Jesus was a Jew, and the God of the Hebrews, the Old Testament God, was regarded as the the Father of Israel, and Jesus taught his disciples to join him in prayer to God uh, by praying, Our Father. Yes, and the Father to which Jesus prays is understood to be one and the same with the Yahweh of the Old Testament, which rules out the Yahweh of the Old Testament being the Trinity. So there's a very clear conflict here between later Trinitarian theologies and the theology of the New Testament, as reflected in Jesus' teaching and practice, not to mention those of his apostles. Similarly with the Shema, Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This would have been a typical Jewish belief that Jesus would have held uh, in his incarnate state. Now here comes the subject change that is traditional. So keep in mind that this isn't just about the Trinity. This is also about the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity has a human nature uh, as well as a divine nature, and it is in that human nature that he lives and works as Jesus of Nazareth in Israel 2,000 years ago. So some of the things Jesus does, he does through his human nature, and presumably other things he does, he does through his divine nature. What? Where is this in the New Testament? What does it even mean to do something through a nature? Again, notice the appeal to incarnation that does nothing at all to resolve the difficulty. And if you look more carefully at this passage than Dr. Craig cares to, you'll see the conflicts with later Trinity theories. Let's look a little more closely, shall we? Mark 12, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, that is Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one, and besides him, there is no other. Right, so the scribe there is quoting Deuteronomy 4.35, and they had just been discussing Deuteronomy 6.4, the famous Shema prayer. He goes on to agree about the second commandment too, but notice what the scribe had said. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and besides him, there is no other. Who is this he and him? It's the Lord your God. It's Yahweh understood as a single person the way that Jews understood it in that time. The language is not consistent with Yahweh being three persons. Yahweh is a he, not a they. What does Jesus do here? Does he say, well, my Jewish friend, your monotheism is a little strict and stingy? No, it says in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus agrees with this Jew about who God is, and that's not the Trinity. It's the one that Jesus prays to as our Father in heaven. Now this next part is such a canned answer, it really irritates me. 
It's what I call the shallow bookends reading of the Gospel according to John. It ignores so many things in between, and even before and after, these famous proof texts. To me, it's almost kind of dishonest to just give this little thumbnail sketch of what supposedly the fourth gospel is up to. And remember as well that it is the same gospel, namely the gospel of John, which asserts that Jesus is God, uh, John 1.1, and John 1.18 calls Jesus the only begotten God. Again, we're verging on just outright dishonesty here. Dr. Craig is telling you what a plurality of conservative scholars say about that contested and difficult verse. There's a textual problem here. And some of the best commenters on John say only begotten God or unique God. No, John doesn't think the Son is the unique God. He thinks the Father is the unique God, like he says in chapter 17. Also, what would it be for a God to be begotten? Begotten and God, those words don't really go together. And surely it makes more sense, as some of the manuscripts say, that John would write only begotten or unique son. That's what some of the best commenters say. So to just say outright, yeah, it says only begotten God right there. Mm, that's what some scholars say. You're going to base your reading of John largely on that, together with this contested interpretation of John 1 that we mentioned before. Just stated with absolute confidence, as if no one had ever disagreed with this. And then the climax of the Gospel of John comes in chapter 20, verse 28, with Thomas's confession to the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, "Have you? Uh, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who believe without having seen. So it's the same John, the same Gospel, that affirms the full deity and equality of Jesus with God the Father. Dr. Craig frankly doesn't seem to be familiar with Unitarian Christian readings of that passage. On some of those, we would appeal back to John 10 and point out that according to Jesus and according to this author, those to whom the word of God came can be referred to using the word theos. So maybe Thomas here is calling Jesus his God in that lower sense. Of course, when you look before and after this passage in John 20, you see clear implications that Jesus is not God, but rather the Father is his God, it says. And whether or not this is the climax of the book, the thesis statement of the book comes after, and it's just that Jesus is God's Son, that is, his Messiah. It's not that Jesus is God. Another interpretation of this passage appeals back to earlier in the book, show us the Father, Jesus says, what? I've been with you for how long? And you're asking me to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, well, here the disciples, as represented by Thomas, finally are recognizing that the one God has been in Christ all along, working through him, which is another big theme of this gospel in the middle of the book. So using the context of the rest of the book, not just picking out your favorite Jesus is God proof texts, but looking at the message that's gone on in the chapters before, you can see this as Thomas saying to him, my Lord and my God, saying that literally to Jesus, but recognizing Jesus as the unique Lord in whom the unique God has been working. Now, I hated those answers from Dr. Craig so much that I'm going to go back and answer the listeners' questions myself. If the triune God is equal, then why does Jesus say in the Gospel of John that the Father is greater than me? Good question. And we say the Trinity is co-equal. I think you mean that each person of the Trinity is co-equal. So how can one of them be greater than the other? Of course, the New Testament in many ways portrays God as greater than Jesus. Jesus here just says, you should rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Greater how? Well, he doesn't say. Greater in lots of ways. One way the Father is greater than Jesus is he's Jesus's God. So if he's Jesus's God, he's the one God. And because there's only one God and Jesus is not the Father, then Jesus is not as great as the Father, that is, as great as the one God. So yeah, being under a God means you're not as great as God. I've already mentioned some other ways that Jesus is portrayed as less than God. Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. Jesus is mortal before his resurrection. 
Jesus can't be tempted. God can't. Jesus's authority needs uh, affirmation by somebody else, like by the miracles that God gave him to do, whereas God doesn't need that kind of testimony to back him up, etc. And again, notice that no New Testament author says, hey now, be careful. Don't infer that Jesus is less than fully divine because he just has these limits as human or relative to his human nature or qua man, etc. That doesn't occur. That they don't have that concern is very unlikely if they think that Jesus is fully divine. On the other hand, this lack of concern is expected if they don't think that Jesus is fully divine. So this seems like important evidence that these authors are just unconcerned with the Nicene claim that Jesus has the same usia as the Father. Jesus prays, Our Father who art in heaven. So why a prayer to the Father and not to the triune God? Because in the New Testament, the Father and the one God are understood to be one and the same. The triune God is never mentioned anywhere, which is shocking if these authors are Trinitarians, but it's expected if they're Unitarians. So that no triune God is ever mentioned using any word or phrase whatsoever is strong evidence that these authors are Unitarians in their theology and not Trinitarians. And notice also that needing to pray, needing to appeal to someone for help, to put your trust in someone greater, this is not something God can do. He's essentially all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good, everywhere, doesn't depend for his existence or his flourishing on anything else. God doesn't go appealing to somebody for help. Jesus does, though, as well he should, and he's a model for us in that. Also, Jesus prays the Jewish Shema in the Gospel of Mark and emphasizes the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but no reference from Jesus here to the triune God. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, just one quick thought. It's surprising that Jesus, if he assumes belief in a triune God, would pass up this golden opportunity to correct a Jew who, as I just explained, obviously thinks that the one God is a single person, namely the one called the Father in the New Testament. So it's just one of many nails in the coffin of interpretations of the New Testament where the authors presuppose that God is triune or tripersonal. It's clear that they don't. Now, what we make of, quote, the deity of Christ and the idea of his pre-human existence and the status of the Holy Spirit, well, those are further questions. And in various ways, they're harder questions, I would say. Many thanks. He says, parenthetically, if I myself can't fully understand the Trinity, how can I explain it to others? That's Mario. Mario, yeah, it's a common place of small-c Catholic traditions that no one can fully understand the Trinity. That's kind of a red herring or a distraction, though. The more important question is, is such a view truly and well-grounded in Scripture? Is it really logically implied by Scripture, or is it the best explanation of what's in Scripture, or neither of those? You need to compare those ideas to what I just said is obvious, which is that in the New Testament, the one true God and the Father are assumed everywhere to be one and the same. About the nails in the coffin, in my initial chapter in this book, there I discuss 20 facts, each of which is such that it would be surprising if the authors of these texts are Trinitarians. And this fact is either unsurprising, expected, or just much less surprising if these authors are Unitarians. And so to various degrees, each of these facts confirms the hypothesis that these authors are Unitarians over the hypothesis that they're Trinitarians. In other words, we have strong evidence here to think that New Testament authors identify the one God with the Father, not with the Trinity. And are they capable of identifying things? Of course they are. They're human beings. Just like they can identify Abram and Abraham, they can identify Yahweh with the Father. Just like you could identify, say, Samuel Clemens with Mark Twain. Mario, those are great questions. Keep asking questions. Keep going back to Scripture. Expect Scripture, as authored by God, to make sense. Expect that human beings can get knowledge of God 
not just confusions about God from these texts. And whenever you expect that you're just getting a pat-off-the-shelf apologetics answer, keep looking. Read all sides of the question. Don't just read defensive Trinitarian apologetics. Read what Unitarian Christians have said. See who has the better understanding of Scripture. Be a good Berean that way. This week's thinking music has been the track Run Hard by Mr. Smith. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.